Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Sean Carolyn joins us today from Menlo Park. Sean is managing partner at Menlo Ventures, a firm that invests in seed, early, and growth stage companies. A major emphasis of Sean's investments is in technological shifts that improve people's everyday lives. He's a perennial member of the Midas List and also the founder of Handle. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Snake. Yeah, talk us through your background and, and your path to venture. Background, I grew up not too far away from you. I understand you're in Naperville. I'm That's right. Glen Ellen, where I went to high school in Chicagoland area and loved machines. Growing up, rode motorcycles, ended up studying electrical and computer engineering at Illinois. I uh, worked at a startup in Chicago uh, back when there were not many of them. <laughs> Which one was that? It was called Open Port Technology. Oh, cool. We we, uh, we wrote uh, servers that would store and forward faxes and then use the old dial-up modem ports to send and receive those faxes. Do you want to explain so, to uh, the audience what a fax is? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Dating myself, for sure. Uh, and then I moved out here to California in 2000, went to Stanford Business School and joined Menlo right afterwards in 02. Very good. And uh, tell us, uh, what is the thesis at Menlo Ventures? Well, the firm, uh, we say we go all in to help uniquely capable entrepreneurs build a better world and, you know, particularly open to, to anything within information technology where you say, I have this important unmet need, uh, good unit economics, I've assembled a team that can actually build this thing. Uh, and then some pattern that can get you to kind of global scale. You know, we want to find the best company solving the most important problems on the planet. Have you guys made any commitments since the uh, pandemic broke in March? Quite a few. We've got several uh, in legal right now. The couple that have closed uh, quite recently and been announced were in the healthcare space. So Rivet uh, and Particle Health. Particle Health is, is a, kind of an information platform that a little bit like Plaid for the health course care system. Let next-gen developers talk to all these esoteric systems to get healthcare data out. Uh, and then Rivet Health is really about shortening that pay cycle. A lot of doctors kind of sit on insurance claims and, and other things for six months before they get paid. So this uh, shortens the whole, that whole path of like, you know, consumer knowing what they're going to pay, doctor getting paid faster. Any changes to approach or uh, categories of interest due to shelter in place or anything that's going on? Yeah. I mean, as you, I'm sure have seen, um, 
you know, this pandemic and, and shelter in place has either, I think, for pretty much all of our companies gone one way or the other for the business. And another Chicago company, just as one example that, that we're investors in called Ship Bob. Yes. Uh, has, has seen business boom, you know, they're, they're, you know, well ahead of their plan right now because a lot of people are ordering a lot of stuff online. What do you know? Uh, and then anything that touches, tra- you know, travel or real estate has just been hit. So certainly I think the ones that we're looking at right now and, and moving forward on are those that benefit from the tailwinds, I guess, of, of these crises. Uh, and so, uh, remote, uh, real estate type of stuff where, you know, you have to get to job sites and, and assess what's going on there is, is one that we're in legal in right now. I mentioned these healthcare, recent the wheels of healthcare, next generation systems to help people make decisions remotely. We've got some uh, coming in on the evaluation list right now. And, and basically, yeah, I think anything that, that touches, how do you get to be more productive uh, without you know, being there together? Yeah, I was I was looking recently, and uh, Ship Bob made the anti portfolio for Newsnack. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah, and I was trying to figure out why we passed. So I went through all the old emails, and um, it turned out at the time we we only had an Angelus syndicate, so this was pre fund, and yeah. we had done one investment, and uh, our second investment was coming down to two different options, and we didn't we couldn't run two at a time, so we had to pick. And uh, we picked the other one. Now the good news is, <laughs> <laughs> the good news is the other one did great. So um, it's well, un- then you don't actually know yet, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, you know, all these things uh, take a while to play out. But um, yeah. well, good. Well, you know, I want to talk consumer, and I'd love to get some of your thoughts. I mean, you have you kind of have a who's who of investments that you've done: Uber and Roku and Chime, Jump, Siri, amongst many others. But before we do that, um, let's talk about your four fundamentals. I think that sets the frame well. Um, can you explain what they are, what the framework is, and then maybe a, a brief description of each? Okay, sure. So yeah, without the the benefit of a of a whiteboard, it's always best to draw these out. But you have to imagine, you know, four overlapping circles where right in the middle, all four of these cross. So it looks a little bit like a you know clover leaf pattern. And you find a bunch of companies that have, you know, three of these, and then there's dysfunction of some form or another. And then these, you know, unique companies that happen to have all four of these fundamentals are the ones that we found go on to be the, I think of almost pillars of, of the tech ecosystem. Right. And, and then all of the names that you mentioned and the ones that, you know, maybe in the Menlo anti-portfolio, you know, Google's or Facebook's, whatever, they, they all have these four. Okay. So I'll walk you through them. So one, and I think is where it all begins is serves a widespread and important need. Okay. So need is like, I think depending on the customer and, and you could kind of, I'll, I'll talk about it in consumer terms, but you can also use this for enterprise, but for consumers, you say like, I don't really care that much about technology. I have a life and I want my relationships to be, you know, strong and loving. I want food on my table. I want a roof over my head. I need to get where I need to go. I need clothing. Like the, the, the basic staples of life are, are pretty stable and have been that way for many tens of thousands of years. And so if you say this is truly an important need, it probably taps into one of those. Okay. 
So that's the important part. The widespread part is everybody has this, right? And and so, you know, as great of a company as as Peloton is, I think not everybody, you know, needs a two thousand dollar bicycle in their basement, you know, as opposed to to Chime, which uh, everybody needs a checking account, right? Like if you have a paycheck, you probably would prefer not to cash that and put it under your mattress, you know, you you want. So that hits the the widespread important need part. And that's where, you know, if you, in the world, if you're not creating something that the world already kind of wants, then just nobody's going to buy it. Ultimately, the customers on this planet are humans and the human has to make a decision that like, I like my life better with you in it when it's speaking of the product. Yep. So that's the first fundamental. Uh, and some people may call that market, but there's a lot of nuance, I think, to get very clear in, in it being a need. Okay. So then fundamental two is a uniquely capable team. And that of course is depending on what that is, that problem is that you're trying to solve, what exactly is required of that team in order to solve it. It varies, right? I think you you look at, yeah, kind of a a chime and you needed a lot of uh, financial regulatory know-how. There's a lot of interesting pieces of the way that system works to navigate that well, uh, you needed like that kind of compliance and, and financial services mindset to build code that can scale and interface with these payment processing. And other things, you need like a, a uniquely capable t- uh, technical team that knew that that world. And each company is a little bit different that way. You know, what is it about this company? Some companies, Pinterest, need great designers. Other companies, Google, need like great algorithmic engineers. So you really need that right team to unlock that problem. So that's fundamental number two. Fundamental number three is the scalable, repeatable growth engine. And this is, you know, how do you take the widget that's creating this value, solving the problem, and basically give that widget to everybody in the customer base, right? You want to give the same basic thing to a million people. That's where you get leverage out of information technology. There's like one piece of code or one piece of hardware that I can set off to a contract manufacturer. And I could basically take that and give that same product to everybody and scale it up, right? There's some scalable production engine. Software is particularly easy because it's just bits. And as long as there's hard drives on the planet or, you know, a flash rail on the planet, you can just <laughs> copy those bits. Zero, zero marginal, marginal cost. cost of, uh, production, yeah. But the idea of, of, I mean, this becomes particularly nuanced when it comes to how quickly can the customer find this value? If you see all this focus on onboarding processes and first-time user experiences, like if it takes me three or four days before I can get capture that value, it's not a scalable, repeatable growth engine because there's there's not met that many people on the planet that have three days worth of patience to figure your thing out. So you know this time to value. You want somebody within the first minute to really understand here's why this is important to me. And then like within the first, you know, five, 10 minutes, really like start to see I'm getting value out of this. Cause even if you're not asking for money, you're asking for time. And then the last one is compelling unit economics. This is another one that advantages software where you basically have zero cost of production. You may have your server costs for AWS of a, of a SaaS, but when you get into the hardware markets, it's really important, right? The scooter markets or something like Roku, where you're shipping uh, little black boxes to make sure 
that you're able to ultimately generate more value in the form of revenue and contribution margin than it's costing you to serve. And, and this is probably where you see the most expensive mistakes is you have all of those other three fundamentals. You do not have compelling unit economics. And then you find yourself with your you know S1 perspective going out uh, like we worked did. And everybody's like, well, wait a minute, this is a crappy business. <laughs> <laughs> And we call those the, the crater. You know, each one of these, if you're missing the fundamental, has like a trap associated with it. So the crater is it's gotten tons of capital. It's gone to way too big of a scale, but without the solid unit economics. And so you just, you know, you don't have a great business there. What are you looking for in terms of unit economics and how do you assess them early stage when they're not quite fully baked? There's no economies of scale. It's a great question. I think there's, I'd say, a set of things that, I mean, you assume obviously as an investor, you know what are what 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 assumptions in a plan are violating the laws of physics and what are straightforward engineering. All right, so I'll give you an example. I'm a scooter company, and you know, right now, uh, my cost of goods on the scooter are four hundred dollars. Right. I've got the frame, I've got the engines, I've got these sub-assemblies. And you kind of say, okay, well, maybe you're losing some money right now because you're selling your you know, scooters at $500 and it's, caused, calling you, it's costing you $100 in CAC. So you're kind of like break even essentially on the economics. But uh, the contract manufacturer is charging me 400 As soon as I hit this volume, then they're going to, you know, willing to do a quantity deal and sell them to me for 300. So there is a pretty straightforward assumption, right? Like I see, I know economies of scale, I know volumes, I know, you know, the cost reduction patterns and other things that I've seen uh, manufactured volume. So that's kind of like in a business plan. Okay. I think that'll happen as opposed to, uh, you know, again, not to pick too much on WeWork today, but, but you know, that, is a pretty tricky one because it was like we're signing these long-term leases, right? Uh, the on these buildings for you know ten plus years, and I'm trying to get those desks to 100% utilization, but you know nobody's ever at 100% utilization. You can kind of look across all the markets. What percent utilization do I did I get to? What are the rents rent revenues? How many people do I need to staff that? And you look at that whole economic equation, and it's like wow, well, you're already in you know, four or five, six cities and none of them are really printing money yet. You know, that's a problem because I don't know what else you're going to do uh, to, to ju juice the rents up. I mean, real estate is a competitive market. People are looking at WeWork and they're looking at this empty office down the street. Well, and your cost, side, decision. cost yeah. side is fixed if you've cost signed a 10 year lease, right? Yep. You so it's just... really that. I think, I think early on you're just forecasting, you know, what do I know, you know, smart people who are working hard are going to be able to figure out and what are these things where, uh, you know, they need to kind of like magic has to happen. I always, uh, I'm skeptical of the business plans where you get to this point and then like something magical happens <laughs> and then all of a sudden we've got a great business. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to, uh, uh, talk about magic leap, but I, I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you like to invest in these technologies that you know, change everyday life for the better. Um, do you have a sense for the needed technologies that will need to come? And then do you find founders in those areas working on those problems? Or, or do you tend to identify you know, compelling talent, compelling entrepreneurs, 
and then they guide you to kind of the emerging trends or technologies that that will shape the future? It's both. Uh, this is something we track internally really closely. And I think of that as you know proactive versus reactive investing. And we're about 50-50. Our, our internal KPI is to be north of 50% thesis-oriented investing, but you don't see everything. And, and sometimes you're near an area, I think of our Uber investment, you know, we had gotten very early into mobile and we're like, okay, 2005, I think was our first mobile investment, a company called Moby TV that was streaming TV. And it was pretty obvious, right? You understand technology. Okay. This is a little computer in your pocket. It's connected to the internet and it's just going to get more and more capable as time goes on. So being in mobile and then, you know, we had our first location-based investment, I think it was 2007, maybe was, um, Telenav, which was the very first turn-by-turn directions. It's kind of like, wow, you know, people have maps and they're trying to get where they want to go. And, and this is going to be really useful. So you you start to see them one thing at a time, but I was not saying, oh my God, I hate being at the corner with my hand up waiting for a taxi. Uh, somebody needs to reinvent this market. It was just kind of like learned helplessness is how we kind of think about it. You, you learn to to deal with the constraints that you have given your mental model of the world at that point in time. So that when Uber came along and I experienced the product, I was like, wow, you know, that was magical. This is something I do all the time. I got to get from point A to point B. And this is a better and faster, cheap, better, faster and cheaper way to do it. So, so that was re- reactive. I mean, we, we heard about the product, obviously sought out, you know, chasing the entrepreneurs to get it, but it wasn't like we had up on our whiteboard reinvent transportation at that time. There's other ones that we do. And, and I think, you know, part of this four fundamentals framework and what we call our utilitarian consumer thesis is just look at humans. Where are they spending their time and where are they spending their money? And those are ultimately, you know, the two commodities that you and I and everybody who's listening to this podcast have that we make a decision over where are we going to put our time, where are we going to put our money that represents our value system? What do we think is important? And if you see all of a sudden, hey, here comes a new technology that can uh, save them time or save them money or in that time and money, give them a better, a better experience, the need's already there. But, you know, now you can do that that better. And so all of the, the companies we've talked about so far, and I'm happy to you know dig into any one of them against the framework, but you say like, that should change. I mean, autonomous driving is a great example. That's a pretty obvious one. You just see how many people spend how many hours commuting. And yeah, I used to listen to podcasts and drinking your milkshake and, and maybe talking on the phone, but you would certainly rather have your laptop out or be taking a nap or something like that. So an autonomous car is kind of an obvious one. Wow, there's both a lot of time and money that's going into getting me commuting to and from work. The ones that are kind of less obvious but very subtle are projects we're working on right now. Uh, you know, we have a seed company that lets you um, order a full basket of groceries based on a recipe. It's called AnyCart. So you can say like, well huh, you know, there's 100 million uniques to recipe sites in the US right now. What are they probably doing with that recipe? They're probably printing it out or putting it on a grocery list and then going over to Instacart and typing that in or going to the grocery store and picking them out. Like, what if I could just, you know, push a button on that recipe and all that stuff would show up at my door? That would save me time and money, right? Lots of existing behavior pattern. Yeah. 
So I could give a bunch of examples, but I think that when you start looking at, at the world like an anthropologist, you just start to see all of these crazy things that we still do. I mean, email to this day, and I know 37 Signals just launched, hey, which I think is a good kind of cool reinvention of, of thinking about what are you actually trying to accomplish with your inbox. But think of like how many really smart, really valuable humans how many hours goes into looking at emails that my life would have been just as good if I never <laughs> spent those mental cycles on them. Yeah, I'm with you. It's insane. I mean, it trillions is. of dollars. It is. Well, I mean, there's so everyone, every venture person who says that like the application layer, you know, has, has been fully baked and there's no more technology opportunity there. And it's all about new platforms. I just, Yes. I couldn't disagree more. I, I feel like we're only scratching the surface of I all agree. the friction that can be eliminated from humans' lives. For sure, for sure. You just don't. They don't. They don't see it. You know. I'm. I don't, I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> whoever <laughs> said that needs to spend some time time with me. I mean, there's, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I see these problems everywhere. It's it's right. almost like an affliction. Right. Yeah, I, I call it sort of the uh, the optimistic contrarian. It's like you walk around, you just see problems everywhere, but you also think, well, that could be solved this way. Um, yeah, like, I mean, screen time. I've got three kids, <laughs> we're on <laughs> lockdown, you know, two of the boys. I mean, they love the, the video games. And you look at how many parental fights are just trying to steer behavior patterns of kids towards some mix of like consumption and production. Like that should be really easy for me as a parent. I should be able to say, Hey, you know, for every hour, a good time. One of these guys is spending on the internet, learning something, uh, you know, researching, testing themselves, pushing their knowledge, coding, like all of those are good activities. And, you know, YouTube, TikTok, you know, any list of things are like less good. I mean, I don't think they're bad. <laughs> they're fun. They you know, blow off steam. Everybody deserves some, some downtime, but I just want those to be in balance. And so, you know, where is my dashboard as a parent where across all their devices, I could just say like, yeah, you know, 50-50 feels good today. Or no, I'm going to, you know, 75% production today. and just the system works for me. So there's just, I don't know, a million things that could get better. Good point. I mean, there's a lot of lossless entertainment out there. And then there's there's plenty of things that kids or adults can do that entertain and also level up skills at the same time. Um, but, you know, yep. I, I, you brought up something interesting, you know, as I think about for every Uber, there's there's the sidecar and for every Siri, there's, you know, a, a slew of voice assistants that just did not work. Right. So yep. have, have you ever been in a situation where you identified the right consumer trend and the right technology required, but you just picked the wrong startup? Absolutely. I mean, my very first board seat was a company called Cinema Now. That was in 2004. And they were streaming movies over the internet in 2004. Wow. And then this little other company here, let's get us called Netflix, uh, you know, came up with a better way to do it. So there was, yeah, one of my clients, like that's, fortunately, you know, we got Roku. So, so some of the times you make mistakes, you're still pushing your own mental model, getting really smart in space. Uh, and then you can find other investments surrounding them that that can make you the money. But yeah, it, it's certainly challenging and, and something like trying to do. I mean, especially as a multi-stage fund, sometimes you like a company 
or you like a space and you're like, ah, I just, you know, I, I like this lower cost basis right now of the A round, but I just can't convince myself that this is going to be the winner. And, and at least as an investor, you're always better off uh, if they raise the next round, making sure you pick the winner versus, you know, getting in early. I guess that's part of the challenge of being hyper-specific with a thesis, right? If you're really, really focused there's there's a lot of risk in picking the wrong winner in your space. It it can happen certainly, but that's part of I think what makes it hard. Like you know, Siri I think is a good example. That was uh, let's see, I think that was 2008 when we invested in Siri. And like, look, this has been in sci-fi movies for decades, right? Oh, you know, talk to the computer and it talks back, and so. I think part of what got us there, you know, there's three different thesis series that came together for that one. And the one, uh, you know, it was like web three. Oh, how do these APIs talk to one another? There was this kind of chatterbot thesis for there's like a, some sort of humanoid thing at the other end of a communications channel. And it just lights up people's imaginations, part of the human nature. And then the third was a voice as a user interface. And, you know, when we came across Siri, even though it was early, it was just a spectacular technical team. Dog Kitless is another Chicago resident uh, who was the founder. You know, he came into SRI as an EIR. Adam Shire was at SRI as a research scientist. And then Tom Gruber was their third co-founder. But they just had a, you could tell, this is an incredible technical team, like great operators, good storytellers. The the architectural approach that they were taking was very differentiated from everything else I had heard. And as a computer scientist, it just made sense. Like, look, I don't think this is going to be AGI. You're not just going to like, Hey computer, you know, tell me what I should do tomorrow to lead my best life. You know, that's pretty hard question for, for a computer to answer, but, uh, Hey, what movies are showing within 10 miles of my house? Uh, And can you buy me a ticket for that? Like, that's a pretty constrained problem. Uh, Weather reminders, right? They had a a list of five or 10 domains where they could get expert and just, you know, reducing that friction was going to be a good one. So anyway, that was when we took an A-round bet, but it doesn't always happen that way. Sean, you got to keep some of these uh, University of Illinois computer scientists and engineers here at home in the Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) Quit taking them all out to the coast. I, I know that you're happy a, to fly to Chicago. <laughs> we, we, we love Team Ship Bob. All right. We'll, we'll send some your way. Um, so, Sean, you know, many VCs think that consumers and consumer behaviors evolve too quickly and in unpredictable ways. And because of that, a lot of VCs just say, we're going to avoid consumer altogether. Uh, what's your response? I think that's great because we're happy to invest in those companies. <laughs> no, seriously, um, it's nuanced. I mean, like, I think you talk to anybody who's good at their job and they will have a, a, an algorithm that they use to deal with new situations. And like I said, I mean, there's certain consumer companies I just don't think I'm the best at at picking or Menlo is the best at picking. I think if it's like, what's going to be the fall fashion or what's it going to take to sell a new type of bottled water? I don't know. No idea, right? Like that's branding. and, And I'm sure there's people who could unpack branding for you in a way that would make sense. I mean, my, our, uh, consumer theses are are pretty straightforward, right? Again, it's like 
look at the behavior patterns, see where the new, I call them ingredient technologies. So, so AI, robotics, uh, machine vision, you know, voice assistants, uh, IOT, AR, VR, like these are all just pieces, right? Those are not solutions. Those are new pieces that small teams can use. And I think of almost like assembling those pieces with new software into a solution that solves one of these problems. So you say, how are these new pieces able to reinvent these existing needs? You know, that's where you unlock. And I often explain Uber as, look, if you didn't have a smartphone, right, with a broadband connection, if you didn't have an app store so that both rider and driver could download the app, if you didn't have a cloud telephony API from Twilio so that two people who never met could set up a synchronous voice call with each other, you know, all of those pieces, those ingredient technologies were required for a two pizza team to make Uber. But once those were there, it was like, wow, this is just obvious, right? All of a sudden now you've got this kind of globally scalable logistics network where anybody who, you know, got their driver's license when they were 16 can become part of the supply and anybody who needs a ride can become part of the demand and the software does the matchmaking. It's a pretty incredible thing. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Totally. It's amazing. Um, so we, we've talked about mobility a couple times now. And, uh, um, you know, before the pandemic, the, the future of scooter companies was a bit murky. Um, and there's been some challenging unit economics and, and fleet maintenance issues. Uh, of course, the governments in some cases were imposing regulations, putting a halt to deployment. Uh, what do you see as the future for these micro mobility and scooter companies? Uh it's a good question. I mean, it's still a, a challenged time because just people are not moving as much, right? Under shelter in place, <laughs> you kind of you're in place. Uh, so we're, we're we are definitely seeing upswing. I mean, there's two different fundamental models. One is in shared, uh, one is in owned, and I think both of those serve serve different markets. Uh, so we've got investment in a company called Skip which is in the shared space and the owned space, a company called Unagi. And I like to think of the archetypes 
of these micromobility users as uh, there's sort of three clusters. One is the commuter, one is the tourist, uh, and the third is kind of like the ad hoc trip, right? And you just say, again, in, in the spirit of this job to be done, um, anything under three or four miles in an urban center, you're probably going to be better, faster, and cheaper on a micromobility vehicle uh, as opposed to taking a car. And so you, you look at a commuting use case and it's like, you know, I used to take the Caltrain up to the city. Every time I get off the Caltrain, I need to get another half mile to my office. So that's one I just, I never want to be there and have a scooter not be available, or I never want to see the scooter I'm about to get on be broken. And it's something I do, you know, in my case, two days a week, but most commuters, it's five days a week. So if it's a regular repeated pattern like that, we think that's better for ownership. If I'm a tourist, I'm in DC this weekend, or I'm up in San Francisco walking around the bridge that's much better for shared, right? I don't want to have to haul my personal scooter around in order to uh, cruise around at 15 miles an hour instead of walking around at, you know, three miles an hour. And so, frankly, I, I just think both of those are going to be big markets, but just, you know, different, different use cases. So still, like I say, a challenging time, but I actually feel like the future of micromobility is very bright and I'm, I'm frankly, you know, happy to see a lot more rational economic behavior. I think this is a great example of unit economics not being in place. A lot of the, you know, the bird, the limes, the, the skips, like everybody was so aggressive to get out there and, and get, you know, these permits and get their scooters in people's hands. They didn't, you know, shouldn't say didn't pay attention to the unit economics, but didn't emphasize solid unit economics as a constraint to growth. They sort of grew despite the unit economics. And then it was like, wow, the more scooters I put out there, the more money I lose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When the capital markets are strong and, and people will write you hundred million dollar plus checks, that's a good thing. But when the capital markets tighten, you know, you actually care about that unit economic equation. Kind of a, a disappointing situation for jump the way that things played out. It was, it was super disappointing. Uh, you know, it was, it was still many would argue the best e-bike on the planet. But, uh, you know, I understand it, it is because of the nature of this business, right? It is something where you have to put out a lot of CapEx, right? You're buying these vehicles and then you have to make your money back on those vehicles over some period of time. And obviously, you know, Uber is on a path towards profitability. So, you know, for them, it just, I guess it felt like we, we had invested in jump and then Uber bought them, um, I guess it was, you know, 2018, I think, if I'm remembering right. So, um, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things. Sometimes there's, uh, there's no right answer, you know, for Uber getting to profitability. It was probably right not to, you know, pour hundreds of millions of dollars more scaling that to global scale. But, you know, for having that great of a product and team not be able to see their dream realize, I'm sure it was both disappointing to them and, and certainly to me. I mean, I, I partly do this, obviously, to create financial returns for our investors, or I'm not doing my job, but, you know, I care a lot about just what are these things accomplishing on the planet? And I just think micromobility is one of these things that's great for the environment. It's great for people. And if we really remake the cities to be conducive to that, I mean, it's a it's a very different place, you know, reclaim some of these parking spaces on 
on streets and turn them into bike lines, make, make them protected so that people aren't getting hurt. And I think, you know, just spirits will be lifted as you buzz around the city with <laughs> yeah. wind in your hair instead of like, you know, in a, in your metal cage. Yeah. The first time I got on a scooter was, was actually in Austin. Uh, it was a lime scooter, I believe. And it was just such a refreshing thing not to have to wait for the Uber. Nothing against Uber. Yeah. It's wonderful. But I mean, just grabbing it and go and then just parking it. I, I got to my destination. It was over a mile away. It was multiple yeah. miles, but I got there much quicker. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, how do you view these situations like with scooters where there's maybe low differentiation and a, a number of players that are trying to scale and grab share quickly? As in like, how do you pick, pick a winner there or what's, well, yeah. How do you navigate a space like that as a venture investor where, where it's, you know, it's a land grab and it's just going to require, you know, gobs of capital to, to grab the market, you know, as opposed to building maybe a sustainable differentiated product that has kind of a, more of a moat around it that can't be just copied. Yeah. Um, let's see. So, so in the ownership space, I think it is much more like a traditional product company. And you look at like an Unagi, that's what they're doing is, okay, let's go with a, a vehicle design that's sleek and light and has the power balance ratio, right? Let's kind of market it in a certain way. And, and they're just trying to make the absolute best scooter for ownership. So, and they are, you know, they're getting great, great reviews in the shootouts. So it's kind of like back to that job to be done. If I'm trying to solve this problem, I have a business strategy that reinforces that. So that's the Unagi one is let's get it, you know, light, let's get the range right. Let's get it to be beautiful and let's get it at a price point, you know, people can kind of afford and really fall in love with and enjoy as part of their vehicle arsenal. For the shared space, it's actually much different, right? There, you say, you know, being a great steward to the cities and to consumers of the cities and to business owners is actually really key. So I need to operate in a way that the cities will think of me as a partner and give me more permits. I mean, ultimately, there that's just a constraint to growth for every one of these scooter companies is I have to put you know, part of my physical infrastructure on the city streets, which I don't own. And I do that at the good graces of, of the city, usually the department of transportation for that city. So, uh, there it matters a lot, you know, can I get the permits one, two, you know, can I operate the, the scooter fleet? Well, you know, get the scooters to the right places, keep them maintained, uh, keep them clean, keep them safe. Three is, is the vehicle design still, you think of like, if I'm going to optimize a vehicle design for a fleet first scooter, it's going to be very different than an ownership first scooter. I want it to be, you know, robust. I want it to be solid. I want to be able to run over a pothole and for me not to fall off it. I need GPS instrumentation in case somebody, you know, walks up with this thing so I could find it. I need range because it's not just one trip to and from work. It's, uh, you know, 20 trips during the day from each person who rides it next. So you know, for that particular market, the ownership, I think what matters a lot now is probably the permits and those that unit economics. Like, can this scooter, which is costing, you know, somewhere on the order of $1,000, let's say, can it last long enough, not be stolen, and produce enough contribution margin over the life of that asset to, you know, throw off cash or else, again, you have a crappy business. Right, right. 
Um, yeah, and, and just final one on mobility here. Are, are there other things aside from scooters in the micro mobility space that you guys are tracking closely? Uh, probably not micro, I would say in mobility for sure. I think there's some really interesting ideas we haven't made, uh, investments yet, but I, I, I'm a huge believer in the long term of VTOL, the vertical takeoff and landing. Think of like a drone, right? The quadcopter, but that can carry humans. So Uber has this program called Uber Elevate, but there's a bunch of next gen vehicle suppliers, you know, for that space. So that I think is just going to be transformative cities. It's, it's the noise profile and the range and the weight, you know, there's a lot of engineering problems to solve there and, and even regulatory with, um, the, uh, the flight, uh, not FDA, it's the flight one drawn a blank. The, um, uh, FSA, FSA. Yeah. Flight safety. So, um, you know, that's going to be a really interesting one. I think there's some interesting ones out there for more like mass transit. So, you know, my, my father was an iron worker on the L love the L, (laughs) you know, I'm probably got to get, go to college paid for because of the L. So not, not to knock it, but like, okay, that's a, I don't know how many hundred year old (laughs) innovation. Like, okay. If I had smart autonomous electric vehicles that were going, you know, kind of on and off that shared rail and knew where each other was and optimized for speed. I mean, like, you know, you could, you could take a public transit, take public transit through fares that are already there and, you know, retrofit them in some way with more intelligent electric uh, autonomously controlled vehicles. And it could just like, you know, the throughput numbers could go through the roof. I feel like, Look how how you look at a train tracks. You know what percentage of the time is that train track idle? I mean that that gives you a sense of what's the potential opportunity for improvement. You know, hundred yeah. x. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, I'm still waiting on the uh, the Marty McFly true hoverboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you got to look at some of the, some of these VTOLs are really really amazing. And you know, you look at a drone like okay, it works. Like that thing flies around and takes great pictures. Now you just got to get it to the point where, you know, you and me can hop in it and scale <laughs> it up. You know, fall out of the sky. <laughs> I I spent my career taking uh, chemistry technologies that were human scale and bringing them down to nano scale. And oh, interesting. Um, and now we're talking the opposite, right? How do we bring small little drones and bring them to uh, to human scale? I love That's it. That's right. So, last consumer question, um, sort of on the topic of conspicuous consumption. What about needs? that are real needs that only apply to maybe a, you know, mass affluent population today, but may apply to all consumers in the future. You know, how do you approach consumer technologies like that? Uh, Well, I would call Uber was kind of like that, you know, their initial tagline was everybody's private driver. So, I mean, you could just look at the, you know, look at the income levels across the country and you can say like, okay, how much can people afford in different areas? And so, you know, a true private driver, hey, I have somebody, let's just say I'm paying them $20 an hour, okay? And they're going to work for me 40 hours a week for the whole year. That's roughly 2,000 hours in a year. 
So $20 an hour, that's a $40,000 employee. I mean, not many people can hire a $40,000 employee just to follow them around and wait for them. So that's very expensive, but you know, rich people had that for private drivers. And then you come up with this different system that just fundamentally reduces the cost structure of offering that. Now it's a Prius instead of a Lincoln town car. Now it's somebody who's on their lunch break and is happy to, you know, pick up 10 bucks, even if it takes them 45 minutes, right? Like, so that's the the key I think is, is, is less, I think always people want these uh, needs met in a, in a, in a superior way. And that's why you see people who do have a lot of disposable income, you know, finding solutions for, uh, for meeting those needs. And the key is how do we now bring the cost structure down? I think this is where AI I think is going to be very interesting is, you know, a lot of the human decision-making that AI does or things you have to offload to, I need an assistant to do this, or, you know, it's going to take me two or three hours to do, you know, as AI becomes more and more a part of our lives, you know, a lot of these decisions will be automated. Uh, a lot of employees who are just doing, you know, super routine manual labor, you know, there's going to be algorithms that'll do that. And frankly, they'll just get freed up to do other more creative things that the human mind is particularly good at. Sean, what do you know you need to get better at? Context switching. <laughs> uh, you know, for it, every this, VC, this is my, I think my number one, uh, Don Quixote's quest in life is a, is a productivity tool that will help me always stay focused on the right, the most important thing and get it done, uh, before moving on to the next thing. So if, if I could do that, I think that would be pretty amazing. I'm working on it. <laughs> have a, have a little project on the side, you know, with an entrepreneur that's, that's doing that. So that's one. And then two is empathy. I think, you know, you, you always go forward to your deathbed and you say, uh, you know, what are you going to care most about? And it's like, you know, do the people that I love feel loved by me? And, you know, did I help other people on their journey? And, and that's something that, uh, I'm trying to get better and better and better at, I think as an engineer, you know, I just deeply trained to be a, an individual contributor. And I think as a manager, I really want to, you know, be an exceptional, you know, mentor and, and teacher, uh, and support other people in achieving their dreams. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a tension always between those two. And finally, Sean, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you and follow along with Men- Menlo? Probably uh, email. <laughs> Sean, S-H-A-W-N at MenloVC.com. We'll have to get you all set up on Hey. There you go. <laughs> well, Sean, I, I do have a hey address. I, I I'm not using it that much. <laughs> hey, maybe I should I should give that one too. Uh, I think it's Sean C S A J W N C. I haven't checked it out yet, but I'm looking forward to it. You know, Chicago based uh, yeah uh, company there. But Sean, this is a real pleasure. Thanks for doing it. Uh, really enjoyed it. I thought we had some great insights here, and looking looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Really appreciate it. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. 
As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.